drive is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Georgie Gardner and welcome to Drive, a future women podcast about women on their way. This episode is brought to you by Uber Eats, where safety is a top priority, from ongoing delivery partner education programs to contactless delivery. Safety never stops. Each week, I speak to accomplished and interesting women about their enviable careers, as well as how they manage to make time and space for themselves. From work and life advice to travel and wellness tips, I find out what engages them and, where possible, pass on their shortcuts. I think it's safe to say that this year 2020 has tested us all. Many of us around the country, either directly or indirectly, were deeply affected by the devastating bushfires. Such was the magnitude of that disaster, much of the world was reporting on it. The lucky country suddenly felt decidedly unlucky, and many of us were left reeling. And of course, the scars from the bushfires were barely beginning to heal when the COVID outbreak hit. And as we know, the pandemic continues to wreak havoc right around the globe. As we grappled with that upheaval came the death of George Floyd, a horrifying incident in Minneapolis that, of course, sparked a wave of protests and unrest right around the world, including here in Australia. Throughout all of this turmoil, many of us have been forced to dig deep, to find the grit. We've been faced with adversity and our vulnerabilities have been exposed. Maybe our way of thinking or our beliefs have been challenged. It's often the case that in times of disaster, we see the very best and the very worst in people. And for the most part, I, I'm of the belief that we've seen the best. There have been some truly heartwarming stories of empathy and kindness, not to mention courage and fortitude. I'm in awe of the human spirit. And this year, I've certainly reflected on what it means to be resilient a word often bandied around but not so often put to the test. My guest today is a woman who's displayed remarkable resilience and knows all about tackling adversity and having to dig deep. She also is well-placed to talk about grit and tenacity because she was Australia's first female Prime Minister. Nothing about that job is ever easy, but being a first meant she faced unprecedented barriers and, of course, endless judgment. She's now dedicating that experience to addressing women's underrepresentation in positions of leadership. Julia Gillard, welcome to Drive. Thank you, Georgie. Great to be with you. I want to start by asking you how you are faring in this COVID era. What's life been like for you during this pandemic? 
I am doing well in this pandemic. You know, I haven't been unwell. No one in my family's been unwell. So from that point of view, we are doing it so much easier than others. Uh, For me, it's meant a fair change of lifestyle. I am the sort of person who's normally always on a plane. Uh, Now instead, I'm always on a video conference. (laughs) And because of my global commitments, they're often at very weird hours. (laughs) What have you found most challenging? Running through meetings where it's okay if you're really familiar with people, this technology, I think, but if you are trying to do uh, meetings and engagements with people you don't know at all, this lacks the kind of social interaction, the body language read, the way as human beings that we really come to understand each other. And so I'm kind of missing that. It does flatten your world. Absolutely. And of course, the great uncertainty of how long this pandemic will last and the consequences that come from it, I believe is incredibly unsettling. For some, of course, it's absolutely crippling. With your hat on as the chair of Beyond Blue, have you got some pointers or advice that could be helpful on that front? Yes, Beyond Blue is seeing record demand. I mean, huge people in their hundreds and hundreds of thousands have been contacting our coronavirus wellbeing support line and making use of all of the Beyond Blue online services, the chat rooms. Of course, the support line takes you through to a mental health professional to give people specific advice for their circumstances. But what we're saying generally to people is to remember we will get through this whilst we don't know exactly uh, when this will come to an end, we will get through it. You are doing the right thing by being cautious and taking all of the physical health advice. You know, it's not often that you can say to yourself you're helping save lives, but everyone is helping save lives by doing the right thing. And as human beings, I think we can bear up to things better if we've got an understanding of the sense of purpose. We're telling people to just do all the practical little things, you know, a bit of physical exercise does make a difference. Making sure that you switch off entirely makes a difference too. Getting away from the electronic devices, not doing that all day, every day, and then all night, every night. And if you do start to think, I'm anxious, I'm exhausted, this is getting beyond me, then reach out for help. The earlier you put up your hand and say, I'd like some assistance, the easier it will be to work your way through it. What's your greatest concern for Australians with regards to COVID? Is it complacency potentially? I actually would use the word exhaustion and that's what's coming through to Beyond Blue increasingly in our support service calls and interactions and chat rooms and all the rest of it. In the first wave when, you know, March, April, when the virus was sort of a new phenomenon, when lockdowns first happened, I think that was very unusual for people. But, you know, there was a bit of adrenaline in it too. We knew this was a crisis and we were meeting the crisis. But the longer it goes on and the greater the uncertainty about the end point, particularly when you see waves of the virus come and go, as we are seeing in Victoria at the moment, Mm. people are increasingly just saying, I'm fatigued, I'm exhausted, I just, you know, can't imagine the end to this. 
And in the face of those emotions, I think we've got to be offering as much reassurance to people as possible that, yes, it's difficult now, but ultimately we will get through it. So just how it's grinding on people is the thing that worries me the most. And as you say, with no known end point, it's very, very tricky. It is, of course, I guess, always useful to try and find a silver lining in times of upheaval. Can you identify any positives to perhaps come out of this era? I think there are a few positives. I mean, it's reminding us that government really matters, how well governments perform really matters. And I hope that brings a new interest and focus on politics and when people come to vote, uh, the seriousness with which they should take their vote. A second, it's been a real reminder that expertise matters. You know, we've spent uh, months now hanging off every word from chief medical officers around the country and the like. And I think that's probably a reminder we needed. I think in public policy formulation, people have got a little bit cavalier about the input of experts. So to be reminded that we do need people who really know having their voice heard is a good thing. I think it's also put front and centre the value of caring work. We sometimes forget or underestimate who it is that keeps our society going. And I do hope that coming out of this, we take with us a new sense of just how valuable the professions on the front line of this pandemic are. And I am hoping too that this era of virtual work helps us diversify workplaces. For a long time now, we've talked about virtual work, not for every occupation, but for many occupations, as one thing that could help people better balance up work and family life. And, you know, many businesses are now doing things online they thought they'd never be able to. So if we can take that creativity with us, perhaps we can structure better career paths, better ways of working for the future. You've just outlined there's some really significant changes that hopefully are going to result from these times of upheaval. 2020 also marks a significant anniversary. It's 10 years since you were sworn in as Australia's first female Prime Minister. When you think back to that time, when you took over from Kevin Rudd and became Prime Minister, give us an understanding of of what you were feeling at that time and what was going on around you insofar as how your appointment was being received. When I look back on that time, I mean, to some extent, you didn't have the opportunity to just stop and feel it. I mean, it was a very um, intense time. Uh, Every minute mattered. There was much to do. And so I really needed to just get on with the job. My main sort of recollection of feeling it is actually in the moment that the then Governor-General, Quentin Bryce, the first woman to serve, swore me in as Prime Minister. And, of course, Quentin Bryce had spent a lifetime fighting for women's equality, for gender equality, wanting to see a better world for women. And I could see in her eyes just how much this moment meant to her to have the opportunity as Governor-General to swear in the first woman to serve as Prime Minister. So how historic it was really came home to me in that moment. And then it was just about getting on with the job. 
I remember that moment distinctly, and I'm sure there'd be many, many other women around the country remember exactly where they were watching you being sworn in. I know my eyes were welled up with tears. I had my five-year-old daughter standing with me watching, and I know it's not lost on you that you understood the significance of that, of the path you were creating, the history you were creating in that moment. Yes, I did understand the significance of it, and in the years since, what I've tried to do is write thoughtfully and speak on the question of gender and what it meant to be the first, but more importantly, to look forward and to try and answer the question, what makes it more likely that we will have a second, third, fourth female Prime Minister and that their leadership will be received not through the prism of gender, but just for its own value. So every, you know, politician, every Prime Minister, every leader, whether it's a CEO in a business or a judge on a judicial bench or someone in the media like like you, everyone is going to have critics and that's fair enough, but that criticism should not come through the prism of sexism or misogyny. So what gets us to that world? In marking the 10-year anniversary, there has been a resurgence of what's, of course, now known as the misogyny speech. You know it's spawned TikTok videos. It's giving exposure to a whole new generation via social media. What's been your reaction to that? (laughs) Uh, Somewhere between bemusement and pride, um, number one, I didn't know what TikTok was, so it was a voyage of discovery for me. (laughs) Yeah, a whole new education. I started getting text messages and emails from friends of mine who are obviously much more savvy than me uh, (laughs) saying the misogyny speech is now on TikTok. So once I worked out what TikTok was and had a look, I was proud to see that you know, a speech given 10 years ago is still resonating and particularly resonating with younger women who have got a clear understanding that they're going out and making their way in a world that is still not truly equal for women, but they are very sassy about wanting to change that. When you delivered that speech, you were well experienced when it came to the gravitas and I guess the theatre of question time. You were very effective in achieving cut through with your messaging. But as you were delivering that speech, were you getting the sense that it was resonating on a whole different level? No, I wasn't. Not at all. I gave the speech in Parliament and, you know, I've spoken enough in Parliament to be able to judge when a speech is landing with force. Mm. And I knew that speech was landing with force because you're looking over at the opposition and they went from sort of, you know, yelling and calling out and, you know, carrying on to kind of dropping their heads. So I knew that it was a powerful speech, but I had no sense that it would live beyond that day's, you know, usual political news cycle where what happens in Parliament on any given day is on the nightly news and might get a run in the next day's newspapers. I didn't see it as bigger than that. So therefore, what's your reaction to seeing it have such international reach and still be so widely acclaimed? The fact that it was going to make its own way in the world, if I can use that terminology, um, started to come home to me even on the day I gave the speech. So, you know, once the parliamentary proceedings that I needed to be involved in had finished, I made my way back to my office. And so that was a little while after the speech. But already the phones were running hot with people ringing in to congratulate me on the speech. And there were, you know, emails flooding in. 
So that gave me the first little window uh, that the reaction to this was going to be something more than I was anticipating. And then by the next day, it hit the international media and it was starting to be kind of viral sensation. Uh, So I understood that back then. What I didn't see in the days that followed the speech is that we would still be talking about it 10 years later. Amid all those responses, did you ever hear from Tony Abbott? Oh, no, I've I've never spoken personally to Tony Abbott about the speech. I mean, he's, I think, said a few things publicly about it in the years since, but no, we've never had a direct conversation about it. He's never contacted you personally to respond to that speech? Oh, and I'd have no expectation that he would. We were involved in those parliamentary proceedings. We were both public figures. And so the things you have to say, you tend to say publicly. And he's obviously made a few comments in the years since. You delivered that speech two years into your leadership. And I've heard you say you wished you'd address the gender issue sooner when you had more political capital. Why didn't you? What held you back, do you think? It wasn't so much feeling held back as really, I guess, a flawed analysis. And the flaw in my analysis was I thought when I was first sworn in as Prime Minister that the maximum reaction to the fact that the nation was now led by a woman for the first time would play itself out in the early period of my Prime Ministership and then it would be back to business as usual. Noting, of course, that Australian politics, business as usual, is a pretty rough and tumble kind of uh, game. And so I didn't think that I really needed to go on a campaign to try and call out or address gendered treatment because I thought it would wash its way out of the cycle. So you thought it would come just by virtue of you being Prime Minister? Yeah, I thought the longer I was there, the less and less intriguing the fact that I was the first woman would become and consequently the less gender would play a role in how I was being received both positively and negatively as Prime Minister. And yet it didn't abate. If anything, it continued and grew. That's right. I did not foresee that, that the longer I was Prime Minister, inevitably, uh, when you make decisions, to uh, quote Tony Blair, when you decide, you divide. When you make decisions, some people like them, some people don't. Uh, So governments inevitably get into more and more controversial waters the longer you're there. As that happened to the government that I led, actually the gendered component grew greater on the negative side. I've used the terminology and I think it captures it well that the gendered insult became the go-to weapon. So how did you deal with that? I mean, there must have been days where you'd come home and just feel so exhausted, overwhelmed, disappointed by that. What would you do on those days? It had a level of frustration in it, but really... I was driven day by day by this sense that, you know, however long you're in government, it's never long enough to get everything that you want done. I went into politics to make a difference. And whilst this noise was around me, my mission was to just cut through it and to keep getting the big things that mattered done. So I did see it and I did hear it at the time but I didn't pile my energies into thinking about it. Obviously, 
there was a sense of frustration, even anger about it. And I think that is what propelled the misogyny speech. So when the moment came uh, to address all of that, I didn't miss it. Uh, But, you know, it wasn't something that was front and centre of my mind all day, every day. And for me, I mean, you know, the past is the past. You can't rewrite any of that. And so the energy now for me in looking at all of this area of women and leadership, both through co-authoring a book and through putting energies into the Global Institute for Women's Leadership in London and now at the Australian National University, all of that's about changing the future. You know, we can learn from my past, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is what's going to be different. You mentioned your book, it's called Women and Leadership, Real Lives, Real Lessons, and it gives us great insight into what it is to be a female leader in a prominent role. And you share your experiences along with other high-profile women, such as Jacinda Ardern, Hillary Clinton, Christine Lagarde and Theresa May, to name just a few. Becoming Prime Minister is one thing, but knowing that you were making history as the first female Australian Prime Minister, were you especially conscious about the type of leader you wanted to be? Did you set out to model your style on any other female leaders around the world? No, not particularly. I am someone who very much believes that we'll have true equality when men and women can lead in any style that is natural to them and which voters are prepared to give a tick to. I think when we have this conversation about leadership, we often bake the gender stereotyping in. So we will accept a man who is commanding and controlling, but from a female leader, we've got an expectation that she will be empathetic, nurturing, team-oriented. I think we've got to work our way through those gender stereotypes and say it's well and truly possible for a woman to be a command and control style leader. It's well and truly possible for a man to be an empathetic leader. Uh, We should work out, you know, who we want to lead at various moments in history based on their personal capacities, not on the stereotypes that we ascribe to the gender that they are. We're going to take a quick break now and we'll be right back after this message from our partner, Uber Eats. Uber Eats is the perfect companion for Aussies on the go. They're for you at home, at work or on holidays. Uber Eats has more than 20,000 restaurants offering fresh and delicious meals at the click of a button. Thanks to Uber Rewards, more than a million Australians are already earning loyalty points on every order on Uber Eats. Download Uber Eats from the App Store and celebrate local restaurants today or explore the new grocery option to get your essentials without visiting the supermarket. Uber Eats, connecting what matters. Future Women is dedicated to helping women connect, learn and lead. There's a price point to suit most budgets or talk to your company about a corporate training membership to advance your professional development. Just head to futurewomen.com. Welcome back to Drive, where my guest today is Julia Gillard. Julia, our paths used to cross weekly when you were a regular on the Today Show, pitted up against Tony Abbott. And I don't know if you remember, but we had the opportunity occasionally to have a bit of a chat before and after the segment. And 
And if you don't mind me saying, I was struck by how warm and affable and witty and self-deprecating you were. And I could sense even in those very brief interactions that you were someone who was terrific company. You'd be a valued friend was the way I used to think of you. And it used to frustrate me that the public didn't get to see that side of Julia Gillard. And I'm wondering if you felt that and if so, whether it worried you. I did feel that, yes, and I do remember those days um, in in the makeup room and and around the Today Show where we used to have some fun notwithstanding that it was early in the morning. Oh, yes. Uh, But however early I got there, you'd always got there far earlier. (laughs) I did find that a little frustrating, I think, and we explore this in the book because those stereotypes that I've spoken about based on gender still whisper in the back of all of our brains. I think it is hard for women leaders to steer a path which looks like they're strong enough to lead, but that they're caring enough to be likeable and acceptable. And because you're sort of intuitively aware that you're picking your way on this quite narrow path, you end up self-limiting your behaviours. And each of the women leaders, we talked to eight from all around the world, each of the women leaders we spoke to talked about this. Mm. And I think some of that self-limiting, it's not that I was kind of conscious of it, but some of that self-limiting did tighten up my style as I appeared publicly Also, most of the time I was coming to the public, it was a very frenzied partisan political age. So most of the time I was being in the public eye in what were quite combative moments, you know, combative press conferences with the Canberra Press Gallery or question time parliamentary performances. There was a lot of heat around and so I think that painted a context as well. And did that frustrate you or disappoint you at the time that perhaps people weren't getting a true reflection of, you know, the other side of Julia Gillard, if you like? In some ways it did, but image is important in politics. Of course it is. People uh, vote for people based on what they see and give political consent to change based on their trust in leaders. And so you do want to maximise that and to show yourself as a sort of complete human being. But, you know, the drive to do that is for a purpose. It's to give you the political space to get big things done. So really my thinking was more about how much we could do rather than my image, though I did intellectually understand and I continue to intellectually understand that one is related to the other. Mm. I sometimes think we underestimate all of that in politics. I mean, we do have a bit of a culture of celebrity around how we treat politicians. And, you know, I think that's the media rage that we live in. People end up interested in public figures based on, you know, for women particularly, what they're wearing, but, you know, what they do in their private time. And we have a range of shows that show politicians in a sort of celebrity light. But politics at the end of the day isn't about celebrity. It's not about you as the individual. You're not a TV personality. Uh, You're a person wielding power and the most important thing is what you use that power for. It's the outcomes. 
you were aware there would be gendered reactions to you in that role. You would have anticipated a bit of, I guess, inane commentary about your wardrobe choices, hair critiquing, all that sort of thing. But were you surprised by the intensity of it? And I mean, we touched on this earlier, just for how long it continued. And I should note that all the women interviewed in your book said they were heavily judged on their appearance. Yes. I mean, I was surprised by the intensity of it. I mean, you know, ridiculous things used to happen. <laughs> you know, the the first full day I was Prime Minister, so the day after I was sworn in, all of the media coverage uh, was around the jacket I was wearing. When I, you know, debated Tony Abbott in the election campaign and, you know, they had that worm tracker thing <sighs> uh, and the worm showed that I won the debate so you would hope that people would be on uh, policy and the issues that were raised in the debate but there was a big sideline on the size of my earlobes and <laughs> on and on it went. Uh, so, yes, you know, I was surprised and frustrated by that. And we talk in the book, um, in a chapter we entitled, It's All About the Hair, how each of the women leaders we interviewed have felt this and how they've reacted to it. Mm. The book also explores how female leaders are judged for their reproductive choices and you choosing not to have children attracted a fair bit of commentary, not to mention some highly offensive barbs. You've stated you were offended by that commentary, but how hurtful was it? And how do you come back from that? I am someone who, um, in terms of kind of personality and coping techniques, even before I was Deputy Prime Minister or Prime Minister, had built up a fair degree of resilience to barbs and hurtful comments. I had watched the experiences of some women who had gone before me and who had served at quite senior levels of politics And I had seen that for a number of them, they really took all of the public commentary to heart. So they would literally appear happier and more at ease with themselves and the world on a day that they were getting good media headlines than on a day they were getting bad media headlines. And I thought to myself way back then when I was much more junior in politics, that's a very crazy roller coaster to get yourself on. And so I thought before I was so much in the public eye about how I would distance myself from the hurt of some of the things that would get said. So it's a, you know, a way of saying in answer to your question, when most of those barbs came in, I was already in a zone of being able to deal with them pretty dispassionately rather than let them really get inside me. That's really interesting. So you had already built up some internal shields is what you're saying? Yes, I had. Yes, I had. And I think everybody has to do that a bit in politics. You know, I think everybody has to do that a bit in any form of public life. I mean, you know it yourself from your own experiences. If you uh, sobbed every time a nasty comment came in on Twitter about you, then you'd never do anything else. So, we, uh, you know, we all build up uh, some form of shield. And for me, that had to be pretty thick and pretty tough. Former British Prime Minister Theresa May was also a child-free leader and you point out in the book the response to her on this was very different. Just explain 
that disparity to our listeners because it's very thought-provoking and, Julia, it is not often discussed. I think it's very courageous of you to discuss it in this book. It's not often discussed. I mean, we do talk a lot about the work and family life struggles for women generally who are trying to combine having a family and having a career, but we discuss less how we react to women without children. The difference between uh, me and Theresa May is Theresa May and her husband had wanted children uh, but had been unable to have them. And in the book, she talks about the fact that the media was always therefore quite respectful when they approached this issue with her and that they didn't make it sort of front and centre of their critique of her. Mm. But it did ultimately uh, become something in the political hurly-burly because when she put herself forward for leadership of her political party, the Conservatives, the Tories in the UK, when David Cameron unexpectedly resigned as Prime Minister, she was initially running against another woman, a woman called Andrea Leadsom, who tried to make the point that she, Andrea, was better suited to leadership and had more of a stake in the future because she had children and would have grandchildren and the like. And it backfired. Yeah, the reaction to that was actually so ferocious yes. uh, that it basically drove Andrea out of the race and Theresa emerged as the ultimately victorious candidate and the next Prime Minister. Uh, but it's, you know, a very interesting insight uh, into how people perceive these issues in a context where the woman in question didn't actively make a choice not to have children. In fact, she actively made the other choice but just wasn't able to have children. Mm. Jacinda Ardern has been incredibly effective, I think, in staring down sexist questions about reproductive choices, one being just hours after winning office when a journalist asked her about her plans for having children. It's very disheartening for us all when women in the highest office in the land are still facing that sort of sexism. How do we combat it, Julia? Number one, we've got to talk about it. You know, problems only get solved if uh, we're talking about them, analytical about them, which is why in the book we've brought to people the research base that there is about women and leadership and the barriers we're very thoughtful about the best way of clearing those barriers out of the way and that's the mission of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership and we also have a chapter at the end of the book which is the standout lessons and things that people can do. Mm. If there was one simple answer to your question, we would have found it by now and we would have done it by now. Mm. It's complicated and it's a mix of everything from structural changes that are needed in politics to enable more women to come through, better balances for work and family life, but also each of us addressing the whispered stereotypes that are in the back of our brain, which means that we tend to see and judge female leaders differently. And it's only when we've worked our way through all of that, which I'm confident that we can, that we'll truly equalise treatment for men and women who want to lead, whether that's in politics or any other walk of life. So are you saying that for now, sexism is still par for the course? It is still there. It is still par for the course. And one of the um, huge lessons for me in this book is going into it, 
when we went about interviewing the eight women leaders who were from around the world, from countries as poor as Malawi in Africa to as wealthy as Norway, Mm. uh, when we interviewed those women, I was thinking to myself, you know, how much of their experience can truly be common given they come from such incredibly different countries? And yet what we found is sexism's universal and actually its manifestations tend to be pretty common uh, right around the world. So, yes, it's still there. And then if we recognise that, the question becomes, what are we going to do about it? And the conclusion of the book is, you know, the thing we've got to do about it is to say, go for it to women. Part of addressing all of this sexism will simply be having more and more and more women go into politics and to other areas of leadership. And at the same time, as we encourage more women to go through, each of us accepts some responsibility for helping dismantle those sexist barriers. I mean, when we look at these women leaders, it was quite clear that being the second or the third woman to lead was a different experience from being the first. And that should give us a high degree of optimism that if we can get more women in and more women through, then we will change things. Do you miss politics, Julia? Yeah, I miss a number of things about it. I mean, you know, I'm someone whose life has been driven by wanting to make an impact in the world and I'll never have more power in my hands than I had as Prime Minister to do that. So uh, the way in which you could translate your values into action in politics, I miss that. Doesn't mean that you can't pursue those values and do things in other ways, but it's not the same and not as broadly impactful as the opportunities I had then. I miss the intensity of the bonds that you formed with the best of your colleagues and your staff. There was a real coming together because the lifestyle was so intense so relentless that you formed, you know, really deep bonds with people. Uh, So I miss that very extreme in some ways sense of teamwork. But there are things I don't miss about it. And, you know, the sheer relentlessness of it, uh, public intrusion into private life, I don't miss any of that. And I've constructed a life that gives me new and different opportunities and ones I could not have had had I stayed in politics. Who are the women, dead or alive, who've had the greatest influence on you? Unfortunately, she is departed from us now, but Joan Kerner was a great friend and mentor, the first woman and to date only woman to lead the state of Victoria. I knew her personally because I was a friend of her son, Dave. So, you know, I I didn't just, you know, sort of watch her on stages as a young ALP member. I actually got to know her while she was a leader and I spent a great deal of time working with her after her political leadership when she focused on getting an affirmative action rule for the Labor Party and creating the women's organisation Emily's List, which is still doing so much good work today. Mm. Uh, So she was very important to me and probably my closest female role model mentor for politics. We've obviously had more opportunity for downtime than ever before. How do you switch off? I'm a huge reader. I uh, very much enjoy my books and I read widely. I've set myself a mid-term 
really it's probably going to end up being long term, but I've set myself a mid-term challenge of reading all of the works of Virginia Woolf. Uh, We have the Global Institute for Women's Leadership is in the Virginia Woolf building. I've uh, named the podcast I do uh, after a great line of hers. It's called A Podcast of One's Own because she is known for the statement that a woman needs a room of her own. And I did read Virginia Woolf when I was a much younger woman, but I haven't read it all. And I'm going to start at the very beginning uh, because it's a very good place to start (laughs) and uh, work my way through. So that's uh, part of what I do for decompressing. I will um, not do that straight through. I'll read other things in between, some of them lighter, some of them very different. I have unpacked a thousand piece jigsaw (laughs) that's sitting on the dining room table, but progress is not being rapid with it if I'm absolutely honest about it. Well, the lovely thing about a jigsaw is you can come and go. You can walk away when it frustrates you. I know I've done a few over the last few months and I've found some of them to be immensely frustrating, but also very satisfying once you put that final piece in. That's right. That's right. And it's a good combo, I find, listening to a podcast and doing the jigsaw. It's a kind of uh, decompressing thing. I've been thoroughly enjoying a podcast of one's own. Congratulations on that. Other than that, which podcasts are you listening to and would you recommend? I spend a bit of time listening to the New York Times book review podcast. Um, It's one of the ways I find the next thing to read and I enjoy that, even things that I'm not going to have the time or the opportunity to read. I like the discussions with the authors and I like the insights that they have into what is happening with the publishing world during this time. I've been listening to a World Economic Forum podcast called World Versus Virus, which is a quite combative title, Mm. uh, but it's giving you the up to the minute take on what is happening with all of the new manifestations of medical research, but also the economic impacts around the world. So I'm finding that pretty informative too. And when you really want to lighten things up, because I know you've got a wicked sense of humour, what about what you're watching? Are there any TV shows or movies that you can have a good belly laugh at? Well, I didn't have a belly laugh. I had the opposite of a belly laugh. I had a few jump up and down moments uh, watching the Australian horror movie Relic. So if you want to end up knocking a glass over because you've done a big (laughs) jump when something sudden happens, that's a good one. Is that right? I wouldn't have picked that genre for you. So a bit of horror. Oh, yes. (laughs) We... um, Uh, We have the Gillard family horror gore kind of watching thing, uh, which we don't necessarily do together, but we all do, and then we discuss it. So there isn't a zombie movie in the world, there isn't a vampire movie, there isn't a disaster movie that I haven't watched. Julia Gillard. In fact, I very recently watched Crawl, which was about alligators um, trying to chomp a uh, <laughs> a father and daughter in a basement during a hurricane. Oh, my God. That sounds horrific. <laughs> uh, well, it was somewhere between horrific and hilarious uh, because, of, you know, the, uh, they're always so overdone um, that uh, you, you can get half, half a smile even as you're watching it. There you go. And in addition to jumping up and down while watching that, what else do you do to stay fit and healthy? (laughs) 
Uh, well, I do uh, have, when I'm not uh, self-isolating, I do have the benefit of the beach. So I love walking. That's my favourite recreational activity. And I'm also known to unfurl the yoga mat. Oh, good for you. Good for you. A bit of downward dog. Um, <laughs> you are speaking to me from Adelaide, which of course is where you live. I adore Adelaide. I want to ask you where you would take someone to give them that quintessential Adelaide experience. Well, where I live in Adelaide, the easy run and the delightful run is to go to McLaren Vale, to go along the coast and then swing into the hills. So all dinga uh, restaurants uh, there. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be recommending any, but Star of Greece, the Victory Hotel, mm. restaurants like that, and then making your way through McLaren Vale, plenty of beautiful wineries, wine tastings, great places to eat, pretty scenery, what's not to like. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. And Star of Greece is still on my list. I can't wait to tick it off. I hear such great things. And when we can finally then get to travel internationally, I guess your first destination will be getting back to London, will it? Uh, yes, it will. I'm hoping, fingers crossed, I've kind of accepted uh, no international travel this year, but I'm hoping that I can get back to London in the first six months of next year. I do, uh, of course, have my work at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership to do in London. We're doing that virtually now, but it would be lovely to be back with the team. And I am taking over chairing the Welcome Trust uh, in April. And the Welcome Trust is a very sizable philanthropic uh, fund. It's uh, valued at about oh, £27 billion, pounds, so a lot of money. Mm. And its mission is to invest in health and medical research. And it has a particular focus on infectious diseases. So uh, that's exactly for me a right time, right place, right opportunity, uh, given everything we need to do on infectious diseases in the wake of COVID-19. Julia, it's so wonderful to hear how you're carving out such an interesting and I'm sure very fulfilling career path post-politics. My final question that I put to guests is this, when are you at your happiest? Oh, I think I'm at my happiest despite all of my global travelling. I'm at my happiest when I'm at home and able to potter to do the, you know, restful things and to spend some dedicated time with family. Wonderful. You've been incredibly generous with your time today. Thank you so much for talking to me on Drive. Thank you. That is all we have time for today. Thank you for listening. Drive is a future women podcast made in partnership with Uber Eats and it's produced by Fancy Films. Make sure you subscribe so you do not miss an episode and we would love it if you could rate and review because that really helps people to find us. I'll be back again next week. Bye for now.